0: I you all to grab your Bibles and make your way to the Gospel of Luke this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16. We haven't been in Luke in a while, and uh, so I just kind of want to give us a little background of this particular Gospel. It's obviously written by an individual named Luke. He was not an apostle. He was not a disciple. Uh, actually, we don't even know if he uh, met Jesus or followed Jesus. He became a follower of Paul and we're told within the gospel that he gained his information uh, through eyewitness accounts. Um, most likely, learned some things from Paul, as Paul spent time with the other apostles. And he put together this gospel and wrote it to a gentleman by the name of Theophilus. And one main goal of this particular gospel is to reveal that Jesus Christ was, in fact, yes, the Jewish Messiah, but he was also the Messiah for all people. He came to redeem and to save all people. Luke also wrote the book of Acts and is dressed to the exact same individual, and both reveal that Jesus Christ is for all, and that when we accept Jesus, accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we receive the Holy Spirit. A unique feature within the Gospel of Luke is, is it's this particular Gospel where we find most of the parables that many of us have come to enjoy and learn and, and, and know about. And what's also unique is the passage we're looking at this morning is only found here in the Gospel of Luke, and that should not make us be concerned because all the Gospels have certain passages or teachings of Jesus which aren't found in some of the other Gospels. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of John tells us at the very end, if all things were written about Jesus, then there would not be enough books in all the world uh, to contain them. Our focus this morning is the foreshadowing of the church's mission. Now, the church is yet to be established. The church will be established within the book of Acts, which Luke would lean into when we get to that particular book. But he's setting this up. And we can learn what Jesus does here in this passage, what we are to be doing as a church pertaining to the mission field and the ministry that we are called to do. Now, when I was growing up and I thought of church, I had a very poor conception of what church actually was. Uh, Like some people, maybe some here today, I thought of church as like a physical building. It was a place that you would go on Sundays, uh, maybe Sunday nights as well, Wednesdays, and if they had a a special event going on, like Vacation Bible School or something else, then you would go and attend that. It, it, It was the place I knew that my dad, who was a pastor growing up, was employed at, and so I knew that if my dad was not at home, then he was either at the church or he was doing something for the church. And as I've grown up, and come to learn more of the Scriptures and grown in my relationship with God and my understanding of that relationship, I've come to understand what the Bible defines as the church. Most of us should know, if not, you'll know now, that the church in Scripture was never intended to be a building. It was never intended to be a place that had an address. The church in Scripture is a gathering of God's people. The church is defined in Scripture as the bride of Christ. So if you ever hear someone say that I don't like the church, that's an insult to Christ. If you came up to me and told me to my face that you didn't really care for my wife, I'd be insulted. And Christ takes the same insult when people attack the church. The Bible reveals that the church is where God's people gather together. That's the church. And when we gather together for a purpose, we gather together to be equipped for the ministry of God through the Word of God, and that is through the the ministry within the church, within the body of believers, but also outside in the world. The church, according to Scripture, is a powerful entity because when all of God's people gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, He is there. He dwells in their midst, and we gather together for the kingdom, and the Bible reveals this, that no one in the church is irrelevant. It doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter your economic status, it doesn't matter your education. If God has called you to gather with other believers to form the church, then he has called you to be an active part of that body. Ultimately, the church is not only for growing our relationship with God, but the Bible reveals that the church, God's people gathered together, have been commanded, commissioned, and empowered to take the mission and ministry into the world. In our passage this morning, Luke highlights eight things about this particular mission. I know some of you have been in church for a while, or you've gathered with other people for a while, and you're thinking an eight point sermon. Just hang with me. I had a lot of food this last week, so i got calories to burn. So we're going to get eight points out of these 16 verses concerning the mission of the church, which is the mission of God's people. Time of this writing, the church had yet to be established because the Holy Spirit had yet to come. And that's going to happen in the book of Acts. But throughout this gospel, it's been setting up that moment When God's people would gather to form the church, and they would take the gospel, their mission, into the world. So let's read our passage, and we'll walk through it. The word of the Lord says, After this the Lord appointed seventy-two others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Verse 13, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted in heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. It's mentioned, this passage is unique to this gospel. Now, there's a lot of similarities in what is said here as Jesus sends out the 72 to what Jesus said to his apostles when he sent them out for the first time and what he'll say to them again before he's going to go to the garden in the Gospel of John, the first thing I want us to deal with this morning is that number there in verse 1 and the number that Jesus sent out. I read from the English Standard Version, if you're ever wanting to know. But I know many of us here this morning read from different versions of Scripture. Uh, you, you read maybe from the New Living Translation or the New International Version. Some of you are King James devout devotees. Um, and so you may have read through your passage and your number was different there in verse 1. Now, some versions of Scripture have the number 70. Some versions have the number 72. And so what I want you to do there in verse 1 is I want you to look at that particular number, whatever it may be in the passage of Scripture you're reading, and there should be a notation after that number. It's going to be a a number. It's going to be a letter. And what that notation is going to do, if you have a physical Bible, it's going to take you down to the bottom of the page And it's going to let you know that there are some manuscripts of Luke, some of the earliest ones that we have. Some have the number 70, and some have the number 72. And though we may want to know, well, how many exactly were there? How many did Jesus actually send out? We shouldn't really allow the number, whether it's 70 or 72, cause a disruption to the text because unlike the 12 apostles, notice that none of the 70 or 72 are given a name. We don't know who these men were. And they would have been men in this particular culture, but Jesus commissions them and commands them to go out on a mission. The opening of our text begins with a generic timestamp. It says, After this. Now, Luke uses this particular timestamp throughout this gospel and within the, go- in the book of Acts. And it doesn't really tell us that it happened immediately after what preceded it in chapter 9. It just says that sometime after that, this is what then occurred. And what happens in our text, the goal of the mission was to be like John the Baptist. And that these individuals were to prepare the way for Jesus' arrival. And this is a normal practice in these days as an individual in authority would send messengers ahead of him to prepare the villages and the cities and the towns that he would be passing through or that he would perhaps stop and plan to stay, that they would be ready for his arrival. And just as we don't know the names of these individuals, we don't know the exact number, whether it's 70 or 72, we also aren't given the information or where exactly is Jesus sending these individuals to go? What are the names of the cities or the names of the, de- of the destinations? But what we can decipher, if you're good at math, if it's 70, he's sending them to at least 35 cities. If it's 72, he's sending them to 36. Ah, good. We're good at math. We're awake. 36 cities. And these are all cities we're told there in verse 1 that Jesus was planning to visit. Here's another thing we don't know. We don't know what he did there. We don't know what he taught. We don't know the miracles he did because we aren't given a specific later on in the Gospel of Luke or other Gospels. But again, that's not the point of the text. Instead, it's the instructions that Jesus gave these individuals to set out. And the instructions he gave these individuals applies to the mission of the church. The mission of God's people. The first one is found in verse 2. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And what this verse lets us know is the range of the mission field. The word plentiful can also be read as abundant. Abundant be read is great. It carries the meaning of what Jesus is telling these individuals and telling us that there is a lot of work to be done and there are, is a lot of things that we have to accomplish. But at the same time, when Jesus tells them about the plentifulness of the harvest, he reveals the problem. The laborers, the workers are few. And it gives us an understanding of the church's mission. There is an abundance of ministry to do, but the problem is, is there is not enough people to accomplish all that we are called to do. i said this many times. If Harvest Hill is the place where you believe God has called you to be, then he has called you to be a part of the body and a part of the ministry within Harvest Hill. He doesn't call an individual, praise the Lord, to do everything. But if he has called you here, then he has called you to be a part of something, to be involved. And if you ever think, well, you know, I just, there's really nowhere for me to get plugged in. And I want to just reveal something what Jesus is saying in verse 2. If you have ever had that thought, well, there's nowhere for me to get plugged in, there's nowhere for me to get involved. What you're doing, according to verse 2, is you're calling Jesus a liar. Praise God. Give thanks to God that Jesus has not called you to form this church to be a seat filler. He has empowered you to do ministry for the kingdom of God, to do eternal work. Now, I can't tell you where God wants you to be or what he's spiritually gifted you to do or what he wants you to be doing. I can tell you where we could use some workers. But I can tell you that if you're here, and you believe in your heart, this is where he wants you to be, then he's calling you here to be involved in something, to be a part of the mission and ministry. Because of the problem that there are so few workers, Jesus tells these individuals, and he tells us, that we are to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That word earnestly means to beg and to plead. We are to beg God. We are to plead with God. Jesus is telling these individuals before they go out to do the work that they are going to be incapable of doing all the work. It's a reminder to them and us that everything that needs to be done for the kingdom isn't based upon one or two people. And so we have to be begging God to bring more people in to do the work. Not more people so we can have a greater attendance, but more people in to do the work, to be involved in the mission. And because this mission field is so vast and we can't be everywhere at once, we are told that the reliance of the mission is on God there in verse 2. Jesus says that the workers are few. The mission is vast. And so we have to pray to the Lord who owns the mission field. If we were taking an evaluation of every community that's in this room at this moment. I know not everybody here lives in Stratford. And we were taking an evaluation of every community that's represented in this room today. And then with those communities represented, then we were to say, okay, so where do you work and where do you work? And we find out where everyone works and all the people that they have in their life at their workplace. And then we were to say, okay, well, who's a part of your family? We want cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, uh, grandmas, cats, dogs. Not really cats and dogs, but not cats especially. But anyway... um, we, we want to know who all is in your family. We're going to make this huge list of everyone that's in your community, everyone that's at your workplace, everyone that's in your family, everyone, now we're going to say everyone that's in your social group. Who are the people you typically hang out with? Who are the people you like to hang out with? And, and we're going to put that on the list. We're going to do this from young kids to adults, and we're going to have this massive list, and just think about all the people that would entail. We're incapable the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. If we were to calculate all those groups, community, family, workplace, social gatherings, the reality of what Jesus is saying, there's no way as a church we can fulfill the mission. Now, if we were just talking about people in Stratford, since Harvest Hill is planted in Stratford. We'd be talking about people with addictions, people who are struggling financially, struggling mentally, people who are struggling with loss, people who are struggling with their own family, marriage problems, relational problems. We can't reach everyone here in Stratford as a church. Matter of fact, if everyone who is considering a part of the Stratford community went to church on the same day, all the churches in Stratford couldn't hold them. The laborers are few, but the harvest is plentiful. We're talking about people who need salvation, people who are in the midst of struggle, And this is why Jesus is telling us through this passage that we have to be proactive with the mission as God's people. And then we also have to be proactive in praying for others to join us in this mission. All the while we are relying upon God to do the work through us because it's his mission field. He owns it. That's what it means when he says pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. The Lord who owns the harvest. And so we turn to him. And we rely upon Him. Now, Jesus' opening instructions to these individuals isn't much of a pep talk. If you look through it, there's a lot of negative stuff going on. The job, He says, is is too big. It's too big for you 70 or 72 individuals. Then He delivers more bad news in verse 3. Go your way, behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Let's just put ourselves in this situation for a second. Let's just pretend we are one of these individuals in this group, and you're hearing Jesus' opening instructions as he's sending you out. Now, this is my response. Great. First, we're being sent out, but we can't really accomplish all that needs to be accomplished. And now, we're being told we're being sent out as defenseless lambs amongst wolves. That sounds wonderful. Where do I sign up? But Jesus is telling us, and He's telling these individuals today in this passage that if you want safe Christianity, you really don't want Christianity. Here again, if you want safe Christianity, you really don't want Christianity, which means you really don't want Christ. We are called in Scripture to be the light of the world, a world that is covered in darkness. We preach a message. We refer to it as the gospel, the good news. Part of the foundation of the gospel is to tell people they don't have it all together and that they need Jesus. We hold to convictions through the word of God that there are things which are accepted in this world but that we don't agree with. Paul had to deal with this idea, and he was writing from a prison because he was preaching the gospel. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And he's writing to a group of believers in Philippi, and he says this to them, as he's in prison, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And when he talked about suffering in that, in that letter, he considered everything that this world could offer him, everything that this world preached and presented as rubbish. And I love that word he uses, Rubbish there in the book of Philippians. The word rubbish means that Paul looked at everything the world had to offer, everything the world could give him, and he looked at it as if it was sewage waste. And he goes on to write that he does this, that I may know him, speaking of Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, then hear this, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so Paul had come to this place of understanding, I think most American Christians don't understand, but Jesus is preparing these individuals to understand, and that's the danger of the mission. And all of us, we have this level of thrill. We all like excitement to some extent. And people across this world like thrill and adventure and excitement and the possibility of the unknown. That's why people jump out of airplanes that are perfectly good flying. That's why people jump with big rubber bands attached to them down hills and, and, and off cliffs. That's why people go swimming with sharks. We all have this level of excitement and adventure in us, and this is what Christ is calling us to. He's calling us to the adventure of living for him. This is part of the mission of the kingdom of God is what it entails. Living for Christ is dangerous. Even in a world or a nation that permits us to live for him, what living for Christ does is it makes people uncomfortable. And this is why. Because it calls sin for what it is. That's against God's will. That's against God's word. We love him. Sin is what it is. I encourage you to read through the book of Acts, maybe this week. One thing you're going to see throughout the book of Acts is that those who live for Christ put themselves in constant danger. Because to live for Christ is to upset the status quo. As God's people, we don't live for or worship money, we don't seek prestige or acceptance by the majority. And though we are called and commanded in Scripture to honor and respect the individuals that God has placed in authoritative positions, we don't worship them, we don't bow down to them, we don't see the government or political party as our salvation, we don't agree with all the laws and the rules that our society invents. Instead, we live, act, talk like Jesus, and that we preach truth into the lies, and just like Jesus, we're going to be hated for it. I think most Christians in America don't realize that's what has to happen. If you're going to live for Jesus, you're going to be persecuted like Jesus. This is what Jesus told his disciples the first time he sent them out. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher, and it is enough for a servant to be like his master. But if they've called the master of the house, the house of Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those in his household? If we are being persecuted, students, if you are being persecuted at school because you're a believer, the Bible says that's a good thing. If you're being persecuted at your workplace, the Bible says that's a good thing. If you get persecuted within your own family because you are a believer, the Bible says that's a good thing. Because according to the Bible, it means that you are living and following Jesus Christ. You're being different. You look through Jesus' life that we're given in the Gospels. Jesus was persecuted in the synagogues. The synagogues were pretty much like the Jewish schools. Jesus was persecuted in the workplace, the place where he went out to minister within the nation of Israel. Jesus was persecuted by his own family and those who knew him. If we're going to live to Christ, we have to be aware there's going to be danger. Because if we're going to live for Christ and have a conviction upon the Word of God, then it's going to cause a disruption in other people's lives around us. It's going to make them uncomfortable. Now, hear this real quick. This does not mean we go out into the world looking for a fight. It means we have to be aware of what will be coming towards us. And a lot of Christians have been silenced because they were persecuted or they were afraid how people would respond. That's not living like Jesus. As Jesus is telling these individuals of the danger, he adds another level of difficulty there in verse 4. The meaning in verse 4 is they aren't to take anything of excess. The money bag would be equivalent to a wallet or purse today. The knapsack would be equivalent today to a luggage bag. When Jesus says, don't take any sandals or take no sandals, What he means there in that moment is don't take an additional pair of shoes. Take whatever you have on your feet at this moment. And though it might seem rude there in verse 4, when he says, greet no one on the road, he's not telling them to be impolite. But the greetings in this particular culture were drawn out. It wasn't like, how you doing? Or head nod. Or handshake. They were long conversations. And so what verse 4 is telling us and what Jesus is telling these individuals is that the the mission has to have the faith in God, the faith in God within the mission. He tells them no extra clothes, no extra money, no extra shoes, no distractions. Because of what these individuals were going to face, they were going to have to be completely reliant upon God to provide them for them, which is calling them to have faith and the God who is the provider, Jehovah Jireh. This is the danger of the mission, and this is why I think many believers have a fear about being involved within the mission of the kingdom. It isn't about what we can bring to the table. It isn't about the resources we have. It isn't about our education. It isn't about our training. It is completely reliant upon the God doing the work in us and through us. Another aspect of the danger is because... <laughs> We have to do something we hate to do. Something I know I hate to do. We have to relinquish control. And we have to put it in God's hands. And let God give us the words that need to be spoken. Again, I'm hearing Jesus give these instructions, which are for us today as well. And I'm saying, hey, man, where do we sign up for this? This sounds awesome. And then the following verse says, Verses 5 through 12, Jesus reveals the uncertainty of the mission. He tells these individuals that they are to pair up, and they are to go to a city, and they are to prepare for his arrival, prepare the individuals in that city for his arrival. And they are to go in twos because that aligns with the word of God. God instructed his people that there can only be two, there has to be two witnesses in order to make a statement or an allegation valid. And so Jesus tells these individuals to pair up. You're going to go into a city, and you're going to find a house. And then at that house, they're going to tell the head of the household this greeting. Peace be to this house. Now, the word peace in the New Testament is equivalent to the word peace in the Old Testament, which is shalom, which meant a declaration of goodwill and wholeness. So for today, if we were to go to a household in the name of Jesus, and as soon as we hit the door or rang the doorbell and they opened up the door, we would say, greetings, I wish you the very best and the very best for all who live in this home. Now, the uncertainty aspect that Jesus points out is that they may not always be welcomed into a home, and they may not always be welcomed into the city or town that they visit, And so once they pass on this greeting, this peace be to this house, which is at the end of verse 5, if it's not reciprocated, Jesus says, then that greeting and that blessing will come back upon you. But if that greeting and that blessing is accepted, then they are to stay at that one house. They were not to move around, and they are to be polite in that whatever food or drink was given to them, they were to take it and eat it and drink it. And this is a huge statement that we can overlook within the context of this culture because Jews were very picky about their food and very picky about what they drank. They were told not to eat food with individuals who were not Jewish. This became an issue between Peter and Paul in the, in later on in the New Testament. They considered that if you ate someone food with someone who was not a Jew... That would make you unclean. They were also told not to eat food that had been offered to idols. There were even some Jews who would not eat food with other Jews simply because of where they came from. Kind of like someone from Stratford not wanting to eat with someone from Fairgrove, right? There you go. That's what Jews would do. This is, we find this when, when uh, Nathaniel invites, or Philip invites Nathaniel. He's like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so Jews had all these stipulations, and what Jesus is telling these individuals as he's sending them out, he says, I don't care what town you find yourself in. I don't care what region of Israel you go to. We have to keep in mind, Israel had the north and they had the south, and right in the middle was Samaria. And Jews did not like Samaritans, but he says, I don't care what type of person Accepts your greeting and your blessing, and then invites you into their home. And I don't care if you have a thought or an inclination of where might this food have come from. He says, whatever's offered to you, eat it, because it is God who provided it for you. And with these instructions, we learn another aspect about the mission, and that's the personal and relational aspect of the mission field. This is the whole idea of going to a home. In the Jewish community, the home and the family were the most sacred and intimate settings. The Jewish custom of hospitality was a common feature, even in Jesus' time. But when an individual, a Jewish individual invited you into their home, gave you food to eat, allowed you to sleep there. That invitation was an invitation to be a part of their family unit while you stayed. So it was personal. It was relational. And Jesus tells these individuals, after they give this greeting, while they're there, they're to heal the sick. And that doesn't mean in the home. That means in the the city or the village which that home is located And then they say to them, verse 9, the kingdom of God has come near you. Now, the phrase heal in the New Testament, which is originally written in the Greek, is typically associated with miraculous healing, but it also carries the meaning to serve. So even though we read sick, healed the sick, the word sick in the Greek in the New Testament Does speak of illnesses and handicaps, but it also refers to those individuals who are weak and unable to serve themselves. And so it brings the whole range of people that Jesus is telling these individuals, heal the sick. He's saying, I want you to go serve. You may have to heal, but to go serve those with illnesses... Serve those with handicaps. Serve those with deformities. I want you to go serve the elderly. I want you to go serve the poor. I want you to go serve individuals in that city who are incapable of serving themselves. And that would be relational. And then they were to proclaim, again, verse 9, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And that was to say that the kingdom of God is at hand, or the gospel It's near. It's close. What Jesus reveals to us here is that the the mission for the kingdom isn't based upon a program, it's not based upon or relying upon resources. He tells us it's not going to be easy, but it must always be personal and relational. Go to their homes. Go to the places where they are the most comfortable being and in those places have a conversation about the kingdom and the gospel because people have to personally understand why they need Jesus and the way Jesus tells us how to do it is to begin with a personal touch. We take care of their needs. We deliver the gospel. And what do people need? They need Jesus. And the sickness they have is sin. And so Jesus commissions us, and God empowers us to go out, heal the sick, and let them know the kingdom of God is near. And what that means for us today is that one day, it could be today, could be tomorrow, we don't know. God's kingdom is going to be fully restored And God's people are going to live there. And it is near. He says, behold, I am coming soon. it's personal, the uncertainty aspect of it is we don't know, nor how can we manipulate how people are going to respond. Jesus addresses this in verses 5 through 15. There are going to be some people, when we go and we take the gospel and we go to give them what they need to heal their sickness of sin, there's going to be some people who are going to be receptive, but Jesus says, hey, look, there are going to be some who are not. And if they're receptive, we minister to that house, to that individual, to that town. But if they're not, you know what Jesus says? Move on. Just because people don't receive the gospel does not excuse us from proclaiming it. He says, move on. For those who don't receive it, we deliver the same message that we deliver to those who did receive it. And then we move on. And we leave the matter up to God. This is what Jesus is saying in verses 12 through 15 is that the result of the mission field is in God's hands. Most of us are probably familiar with the city of Sodom that he mentions there in verse 12. Sodom is typically attached to the city of Gomorrah. You can find it in the Old Testament book of Genesis. But Sodom in Scripture is a city which was always spoken of to be an image of wickedness and idolatry. And Jesus is saying, for those who hear the gospel message but refuse it or they don't welcome it, the judgment that God brought upon Sodom would seem more bearable than the judgment that he will bring upon those who don't receive the gospel. And what does that mean? Well, Sodom was completely destroyed. For those who don't receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, they will suffer eternally in hell. Then in verses 13 through 15, Jesus uses a play of city names. He's sending these individuals out, and he tells them what's going to happen when people reject the gospel. And though we don't know the time that Jesus was in chores that's verse 13, he obviously is telling us that he was there at some point, he ministered, he taught at some point in that city. Bethsaida is the location where he fed the 5,000. These were Jewish towns, but Jesus says here in verses 13 through 15, that Tyre and Sedan, which were pagan towns meaning not Jewish people, he says that if they would have seen or heard the gospel, they would have repented. And though the people of Charazan and Bethsaida had heard Jesus teach, they had seen the miracles he did, they were in awe of him, there's never a sign of repentance. And he hammers it down even more there in verse 15. He mentions Capernaum. Capernaum was the city of Jesus' base of operations in the Northern Territory. He taught there in the synagogues. He did numerous miracles, cast out demons. Talk of the town must have been the way Jesus speaks of it in verse 15 as well. You know Jesus is from here. You know this is where he chooses to stay most of the time in his ministry. There was a pride in Capernaum about this miracle worker. He's from our town. At times the scriptures reveal that the people that lived in Capernaum were in all of Jesus' teaching. The authority he had in teaching the word of God. They were in all of the miracles he did. But again, there was never a sign of repentance or an acceptance of the gospel. And Jesus tells us through verses 13 through 15, it doesn't matter who you think you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who you may be associated with. If you refuse the gospel, you're heading to the realm of the dead, which is what Hades means, meaning out of the presence of the God of the living. And We don't get to decide, nor can we coerce people to accept the gospel, but the Bible is adamant. As God's church, as God's people, we are to preach, proclaim, and present the gospel. Finally, after all this great news, Jesus comes to verse 16. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And that's the response in the mission field. When we preach and we share the gospel, we have to understand when people accept Jesus Christ... They're not accepting us. They're accepting the one who sent us. And when we preach and proclaim the gospel and people reject it, they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting the one who sent us. The mission isn't about us. It's not about our resources. Again, not about our training or education. The mission is about our obedient response to the command of Jesus to go and make disciples And while doing it, we're completely to rely on the power of God to fulfill the mission. Someone may have invited you here this morning or brought you here this morning, maybe drug you here this morning. Because they were taking a part in the mission. To bring you to a place where you could hear the gospel and you could hear about Jesus Christ and your need for him as your Lord and Savior. And before I tell you what the gospel is, I want to remind you of what Jesus says in verses 12 through 15. Before I present the gospel, first you're obviously going to hear it. If someone next to you is asleep, wake them up at this very moment. I pray, and there are other individuals in this room right now that are going to be praying that you understand it. And with what Jesus says, if you refuse to accept the gospel in this moment, Then you are rejecting God in your life, and you're heading to the place of the dead, away from the God of the living. And that isn't to mean or sound like a scare tactic, or to coerce you, or to threaten you. I just want to tell you that's what Jesus says right here in this passage. That's the truth he is laying out. Without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will die in your sins. And you will be completely and eternally separated from the God in heaven. And so here's the gospel. God created you for a relationship with him. That is your sole purpose in life. It's not to get a good job. It's not to have a family or kids or a white house and a picket fence. Your sole purpose in life is to be in a relationship with God. And here's the problem. It is your sin that is separating you from that relationship. The word sin is used as a word as missing the mark. Today we might say an air ball. We completely miss the mark. We shoot an air ball when it comes to God's holiness, his perfection, and his righteousness. That's our sin. We do things we're not proud of and we hope other people don't find out about. That's our sin. And Unless that sin problem is taken care of, we will be separated from God forever. And so, what we tend to do, because that's what the Israelites did throughout Scripture, is we'll, we'll just we'll do better. We'll work harder. We'll, we'll do good things. We'll be a good person. But the Bible reveals that doesn't fix the sin problem, that doesn't fix the separation between us and God. And that's why God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to live a perfect life, a life with no sin. And he died on the cross, and the Bible says he took the full wrath of God upon him for the sins of the world. They placed him in a tomb, and then he rose three days later to show that he has the power over death, the authority to forgive sins and grant eternal life. And the Bible tells us that when we believe God loves us that much, We admit to God that we are a sinner and we are in need of what Jesus Christ did and paid for on the cross. That we are to confess that to God. We are to confess that we need Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We confess our need for forgiveness. And we confess our desire for eternal life in heaven. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, when we make that confession, which is a public announcement, then we will be saved. Then we will be given eternal life. That's the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you heard it, which I'm looking around and all eyes are open, and you understand it, I'm not saying you have to understand every theological, doctrinal aspect of it, but you understand, okay, that's what I need. This is the moment God is calling you to. And if you're here this morning and you walk out of this room, what you're telling God is, I'm rejecting you and I'm refusing your gift. But you may be here, and this may be the day of your salvation. And if so, I'm going to invite you to come down this aisle. We're going to sing a song here in a moment. I'm just going to ask you to walk down. You can just sit here. I'm not going to make you say anything. I'm not going to make you do anything. Well, I may make you feel something out, but I'm not going to make you do anything outlandish. And if the Holy Spirit's grabbing onto your heart in this moment, I'm going to tell you right now, if you walk down this aisle and today becomes the day of your salvation, there's not going to be a believer in this room who's not going to be excited for it. And the Bible says that when one person repents and comes back to God, the heavens erupt. Maybe this is your day. In fact, invite Nick and Bridget to come up and lead us in a song. I want to pray over us real quick. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for revealing that we need you, revealing how we can accept you, and inviting us to be a part of your family. Lord, let us be a church on mission. A church that is living and active, just as your word is living and active. A church that understands that there is going to be danger. There is going to be persecution. There is going to be rejection. But so what? We're going to keep pushing forward. We're going to keep our eyes on the prize and the author and perfecter of our faith. I thank you for every individual you've called to this place to form this body, this church. Lord, I pray as there are many ministries to be involved in here many ministries to be involved in our communities, in our workplaces, and our social gatherings. I pray, Lord, you send us out as laborers in the harvest. And Father, there's someone here this morning who your Spirit is speaking to that today they need to accept you as their Lord and Savior and find forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray your Spirit grab a hold of their heart and give them boldness and courage to walk down this aisle. Thank you for allowing us to be in your presence. We give you praise for you alone are worthy of it. And praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.